Yes, this is EM Case's Best Case Ever mini-podcast series, and I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman. Here we are at North York General Hospital's Emergency Medicine Update Conference, and for the first time, we have had the pleasure and honor of having Dr. Scott Weingart of EM Crit fame give us his best case ever. So I'll just cut to the chase. Dr. Weingart, let it rip. What's your best case ever? Well, you asked me for my best case. This is one of my worst cases, but it it's probably the case that taught me the most. So I think it, it fits the bill for what you're asking for, Anton. This was a case I actually experienced during my critical care fellowship. And we had had a patient with a bad traumatic brain injury. He had had a car crash and he had come in with a very low GCS and we had spent the past two months nursing him back to health. And I never thought he, when I first saw him, would ever be to the point where we were about to discharge this patient. And his neurologic function had improved to the point where all of us were sure uh, after some stint in a rehab facility, he would go back to his family and have a perfectly normal life. So this was a win, a success story. But the patient was still intubated and we didn't think he'd make it with extubation yet. He got agitated every so often and he needed to be calmed down, get a little medication. And so we wanted to send him to the rehab facility um, because being in the hospital is bad, but he wouldn't make it extubated. So we decided to perform a trach and we did our own tracheostomies there. We did them percutaneously with a needle Selnager type technique. And um, I did the trach with my attending and it was a little bit low. This guy doesn't have much of a neck and I didn't have much to work with. And I dove down underneath his sternal notch and I got it. And it went well. I was a little bit leery because it, it was a low trach. Um, it was probably a few rings down than would have been ideal. And no problem, got the x-ray. And I went home that day. I was on call, I think four days later. And I got called to the bedside by the nurses because they had suctioned the patient and there was a, a little bit of streaky blood throughout all of his secretions. And sometimes when they suctioned, it would be just a little bit of blood. And they were nervous and they, they called me to the bedside and he looked fine. He was saturating well. There was no problem with the trach. I checked his patency. Everything was great. And I wasn't suctioning up any blood, but I was still scared because I had done this procedure. And of course, when you first start doing procedures, you always worry whatever happens was something you caused and it would be whatever complication is worst for that procedure. So I was worried about a complication called tracheonominate fistula. A what fistula? So where the trach actually sits is right over your brachiocephalic artery. And uh, in the past, it wasn't uncommon for the movement of that trach or the balloon itself of that trach or the end of that trach to erode through the tracheal wall into what is a vessel coming directly off the aortic arch. And you can imagine a lot of blood flowing through there. Well, And so it was often talked about, but it's a rare complication. And in fact, now in these days, uh, and even back then where you monitored the cuff pressure, which, you know, in the 50s they didn't do, um, but with monitoring of the cuff pressure, I mean, it's almost unheard of. But this was the first thing I thought is I've caused the tracheonomic fistula. Called my attending and he probably very appropriately said, no, no, it's nothing. It's fine. Don't worry. Call me again if the patient gets uh, any additional problems. But if that's all it is, don't worry about it. I was actually brought to the bedside again about an hour later, and I was brought there by a cardiac arrest call overhead. And when I got into the room, every wall and the ceiling was covered in blood, and this patient was actively exsanguinating from the trach site. And 
required an enormous degree of resuscitation, got 40 units of blood and the other products to match, was taken to the OR for sternotomy, and they got control of the vessel. And eventually the patient was hemodynamically stable, but brain dead. And this was a patient who was about to go home to their family. And it was my trach that caused this situation. It was the first time in my career that I realized that the things we do procedure-wise have enormous potential to change a patient's course for the better and for the worse. Yeah, I mean, a lot of these procedures, you know, they go upstairs and we never see them again. No, that's exactly right, Anton. And in fact, when I talk to my residents about the value of a critical care fellowship or an intensive care fellowship, it's not necessarily for the knowledge base you gain. You could gain that on your own. You could read books. You could talk to smart people. The reason to do an intensive care fellowship is to see all of the bad things that happen to patients. And that's what you get over the course of that year is you get an appreciation that tempers our enthusiasm to do invasive procedures. Um, the other thing a case like this will make you quickly realize is that no matter how cruel some of the surgeons are, you need to have an enormous amount of respect for them. Because I saw this situation uh, a handful of times in my career. They see it every day. Their actions directly caused a patient's bad outcome. And there's no way they're going to avoid that. That's just the nature of their field. They're doing a lot of procedures, and some of those patients will do poorly. And in some ways, they have to feel direct responsibility. It doesn't mean they did anything wrong. I don't know if I could have done anything different on this trach. I look at it a couple hundred times that year and said, wow, if I had just gone a little bit higher, I don't know. He still might have gotten that tracheonomic fistula. It doesn't matter. What that case made me appreciate is that we have to decide before doing any procedure, even innocuous procedures, what could happen and is it worth it? So I'm sitting here thinking as I'm listening to this, this is coming from Scott Weingart. One of your mantras, Scott, is maximal aggressive care. And generally speaking, I would say that in the U.S. where you practice, eMERGE docs, not eMERGE docs, ED docs, are more aggressive in terms of doing invasive procedures than Canadians are. And we often have errors of omission more than we have errors of commission um, because sometimes we're maybe not skilled enough to do something or we're worried that something's going to go wrong if we do do something. So how do you bring that together? The fact that one of your messages is to practice maximal aggressive care, yet you have to have a good appreciation for the potential complications. Yeah, absolutely. It's such a good question. Maximally aggressive care, to my mind, is, a, is in mindset and not necessarily in doing a procedure because maybe there's a slight indication, and you, but, you know, let's do it anyway. That that not is not necessarily what I hope I get across, though I think you're right. Uh, that message can be interpreted that way. The other thing is... Uh, when we talk about maximally aggressive care, it's at the point where it's clearly the right move for the patient. And the dithering at that point is what I, I really preach the avoidance of. It doesn't mean doing a procedure just because you can. And my fear, and it's been proven to me that this is not an unfounded fear, is that sometimes the people that listen to the things I say turn out to be more aggressive in terms of procedures than I would be myself. And that's because I temper every possible procedure with things like this case and others I've seen where things can go horribly awry. And thank you for pointing that out, that that message does need to be tempered with an understanding that every time we pick up a knife, every time we stick a needle into something, bad things can happen. Most of the bad things are minor and fixable, and sometimes they're not. Sometimes it'll alter an entire patient's 
course of care. Sometimes it'll change them going back to them, going back to their family and unfortunately uh, being withdrawn upon, which is what happened with this patient. You know, part of our job as emergency physicians is to be risk assessors, and we are really good risk assessors. So there's no reason why we shouldn't be really good risk assessors when it comes to doing procedures. Absolutely agree. Let's just go back for a bit and talk about the clinical side side of this. What is a tracheo, what's it called, fistula? Yep. So tracheonominate fistula. Uh, you may see this in your career. It won't be from something you do, but when you put a trache in, the lower portion of it sits right against a huge blood vessel coming off the aorta, your right brachiocephalic artery or the innominate artery. And whether the balloon is pushing up against that or the bottom of the trache, there can be an erosion through that trachea into the wall of the vessel. And you can imagine what happens um, when that vessel is directly linked to your trachea. It is not subtle. It's gotten far more rare because we are monitoring cuff pressures. And in general, uh, whatever techniques have changed over the years have made this a very infrequent situation. But you could see it. You could see it in a patient who was transferred out to rehab. They had their trach one or two weeks ago, and then they come back with some bleeding. Uh, you could have a patient who was uh, sent down to CT scan from the surgical ICU after they had a trach a couple weeks ago, and then they start decompensating there. So it is possible. In general, it doesn't happen uh, for the first 48 hours, and then the most common time is uh, one, two, three weeks out. After that, generally, it's not going to be an issue. It's thought to have some association with a low-riding trach, like we had in this patient, where it's a little bit lower than you'd like, or overinflation of the balloon. They do present commonly with what's called a sentinel bleed, and it's what I described in this patient. They have just a little bit of blood, and it stops on its own. That's that first little inkling of connection between the vessel and the trachea. And then that sentinel bleed heralds a enormous exsanguination. Right, so hopefully we get in there just after that sentinel bleed and be able to recognize it. The problem is it's tough to diagnose at that sentinel bleed point. Uh, bronchoscopy is what you want, but that bronchoscopy should probably be done in an operating room because the bronchoscopy itself could change that from a sentinel bleed to the full-on exsanguination. So getting people to take this seriously, to take the patient to the operating room, to perform by withdrawing back the trach, a bronchoscopy to actually visualize this, it's not easy. So suffice to say that if you have any blood from a trach, you should assume that it's this diagnosis. Well, the, or, if you, if or you, is there is there a big wide differential for this? Yeah, there is. Um, usually, I, almost always, if you see some bleeding from the trach, it's because something is irritated in the trach wall. It has nothing to do with a large blood vessel off the aorta. And if you start, you know, mobilizing the posse for every single streak of blood out of a trach, uh, you're going to be chicken little after a very short period of time, and no one will ever listen to that phone call again. I, I think most cases of blood from a trach probably should have ear, nose, and throat involved at some point in either the patient's hospital course or uh, very soon after a discharge from the ED or back to rehab. Um, but no, most of these will be nothing, and you can't call each one. Most of them, luckily, we see are outside the time course for where you're really going to worry about it. They're months in. But let's say you had the enormous bleed. Well, now there's not too much else that causes exsanguination from a trach site than this. What do you do? Move number one is you intubate from above. Move number one on every trach emergency for an eMERGE doc, to my way of thinking, as long as they haven't had a laryngectomy, as long as they're in continuity, they're, they're actually still a connection between their mouth and their lungs, um, is intubate from above. Now, when you intubate from above, 
you're going to hit that trach. That's fine because they're still breathing through the trach itself, whether it's uh, spontaneous or what you should immediately do, which is put these guys on uh, mechanical ventilation. Then the next thing that's described, and you could do this simultaneously, I'm just, I have to pick an order, but you should probably do these both at once, is overinflate the balloon of the trach. Really put a lot of air in there um, because ostensibly if the balloon itself was what caused the uh, erosion of the trach wall, now you're going to cause some direct pressure over the site. And that might actually stop the bleeding. It doesn't mean you're out of the water, but it means you've temporized that patient. So overinflate that trach balloon. That's not working if they're still bleeding. The next step is you have to take that trach out and then advance the tube so that the balloon is now distal to the bleeding site because that'll keep the patient from drowning in their own blood. And then the next move, what we did on this patient, is you actually put a couple of fingers in that site or one finger, if that's all you could fit, into the trach site and you push the vasculature up against the underside of the manubrium. And then you haul ass to the operating room. Wow. Okay. Those are some great pearls on what to do if you're faced with a trach patient who just starts bleeding like stink. Absolutely. So it was my best case ever, not in terms of a good outcome. The outcome was horrible, but maybe in terms of what it taught me and how it guided my career. For an excellent review on managing tracheonominate fistulas, check out the amazing foam blog by my friend Justin Morgenstern called First 10 EM, which gives you great approaches to the first 10 minutes of many EM challenges, like massive hemoptysis in the trach patient. And stay tuned for the next episode when we bring you highlights from North York General Hospital's 28th Annual Emergency Medicine Update Conference. So until next time, take it easy.